Well, good morning, church family. So glad to see you. You made it. Yeah. Some of you look good. Some of you look rough, but we love you nonetheless. <laughs> uh, name is Brandon Ziski, and if you're joining us online, we're glad to have you. Um, our heartbeat here at Austin Oaks Church is to strive to be simply about Jesus, because when you do encounter him, it changes everything. And that's why everything we do, we strive to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so um, I just want to do a few things before we get into the text this morning. Um, I want to say thanks to a lot of you in our church. Um, I want to say thanks to those who are volunteering with an ADRN, Austin Disaster Relief Network. They're, yeah, they're, they're really serving above and beyond. And so um, one of the things that we, like I also want to brag on our staff. You guys, if you don't know, we have an amazing staff team. You know, some of them are out there right now trying to, again, to bring water and so we've been trying really hard to figure out how to best utilize our church and resources to, to help the city of Austin. And um, it was crazy how God just worked out yesterday. And somehow we were able to find some guy who could give us some big old 300-gallon totes of water. And we were hoping that maybe our church could have power and water so we can give it out. And that didn't happen. And, and the guy's like, I got water. So all of a sudden, next thing you know, all these things started to happen. We are able to bring water here. And and to serve our immediate neighborhood because just like many of us, our immediate neighbors didn't have water. And so again, I want to just let you know, and even if you're online, if you need water, filtered water, water that you can drink, we have it here. Um, we're going to have a few rounds of it. So we're able to serve anywhere between like, I don't know, I don't want to overpromise, like three to 600 families, up to five gallons per family. So if you need water, bring a gallon. It'll be right out there. I sent out a cheesy post on Facebook because I thought it'd be funny. Like come to church to get living water and then stay after church to get fresh water. All right, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I know it's just kind of corny. But nonetheless, do that. Thank you so much. Um, just because they're here and, and they're going to be mad at me for doing this. But I want to say thanks to Bill and Rita Davis right over here. Um, they, they're, they're powerhouse servants within the church, but also within the city with ADRN. Um, and they had a pretty big water disaster themselves, but they're still being selfless. And I would just say thank you for showcasing Jesus so well. You know, so I just want to say thank you so much. Um, one thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to be asking you to consider giving generously to what we've developed as a winter storm fund. Okay, and so as a church, we're going to be contributing a significant amount of money to that because as everything starts to settle and water and stuff starts to show up, there's going to be a lot of people with house repair bills and other financial issues and hardships that they might not be able to cover. Um, sometimes they might not be able to reach their deductible with insurance or they're underinsured or don't have insurance. And so we are going to continue to fund this to help people with financial needs and hardships. And so if that's you and you need financial help as it relates to the winter storm, you can go online. There's a form there where you can submit it. Even if it's just like you just need help, maybe ripping out sheetrock or sweeping up stuff, or you got a fallen tree. We got a bunch of guys that would love and gals who would come to love, help clean up your homes. So please do that. But I want to encourage you above and beyond what we normally give to the church, consider being generous and to give to the Winter Storm Fund. If we exhaust our resources within the church and we are able to meet the needs of the people within our church, we're going to take all the money that we have raised and we're going to give that to ADRN because they're going to be reaching the city and out, out other parts of Texas as well. So we're going to be doing that. So every dollar is going to be going to helping the city of Austin and probably other Texans get back on their 
feet in this. So I want to consider, uh, challenge you to consider doing that. And what's cool is um, some of my friends in churches up in Minnesota who not only like to give me a hard time saying, so how's Texas? They're like, man, don't even, right? I was just like, but they were, they were like, what can we do? You know, they were like, we want to send water or food. I was like, it ain't going to get here. You know, and by the time it gets here, we're going to be good. And so they are actually raising support and, and finances too to contribute to the Winter Storm Fund, which is awesome. And so I'm just, I just love when we see the church of God gathering and rallying together to bless our neighbors and to embrace the gospel that way. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good time. And so this is an awesome opportunity to meet your neighbors, to pray for your neighbors, to love on them, to ask them what their needs are and just say, hey, we as a church, we can help you. What, what do you need? And so I want to encourage you to do that, okay? So this morning, we're going to be in a powerful story. And so if you got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to it. If you got a phone, open it up, go up to the Bible app or whatever Bible app you have and go to Luke chapter 4. And as you're um, getting there, I want to share with you a memory that I had this week. And I was roughly about five or six years old. And I remember this, I was grocery shopping with my dad. And I remember like um, feeling like I was like super, super thirsty. And like to the point of death, I was extremely dehydrated. And I started to do what every five or six year old would do with their dad or mom when they have a, an immediate need. They would ask politely and rationally, hey dad, I'm really thirsty. Do you think you could help me get some water? That's not what, what I did, right? It's like, I just started to really just like, dad, I need some water. I need some water right now. And I just started to throw a little, you know, little fit in the store. And he's like, buddy, just be calm, be patient. We're almost done. I promise you when you get home, we can get all the water you want. And, and I was like, ugh. And I just kept ratcheting up and I felt like I was going to die of dehydration. And, and so as we were shopping and making our last little round, we were going down the, the frozen um, food section. And my dad said, okay, hey, why don't you go down there and grab some, I don't know, let's just say it was pizza. Just grab some pizza. And I, and I did that. And I opened up the freezer door and I saw ice. And I was like, I know what ice turns into if it warms up, water. And so all of a sudden, I started to have this internal wrestling match between what's smart and what's foolish, what's right and what's wrong. And I, I was like, okay, my dad obviously doesn't care about me because if he cared about me, he would give me water right now because I'm dying. He doesn't see that. So I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And so I didn't even think through all of the things, sanitation things like, I don't know who touched this or this, but I didn't really care. I just knew I was dying of thirst and then I needed some water. And so without realizing it, you would think that a smart kid would scrape off the ice, put it in his hand and do this. I thought I got to be quick and sneaky. And I just put my tongue on the, the metal and um, yeah, it didn't work out so well. I breaked my head around and let's just say it hurt really bad. I lost the battle of temptation in that moment. And I share this with you. Because as funny as that is, and as ridiculous as that is, we need to be on the same page this morning. We all lost this battle. Every single one of us has lost the battle to temptation. We have all fallen prey to temptations. We have all chosen what is foolish, what is wrong. We have all doubted God's character. Will he take care of me? Will he provide him for me? Does he care? All these things. We have chosen, we all have chosen to worship other gods. We have all created gods in our image. And we have all defined God based upon our feelings or our circumstances. This morning, the story that we're in brings us good news of great joy because where we lose, he wins. Where we fall, he stands. 
And we have to be mindful of that. This story is so significant. And it serves as a reminder more than just an example, more than just a model. It reminds us of the kind of king that Jesus is. He's an unexpected king, bringing in an unexpected kingdom. And if we recall, we've been saying this from the beginning that Luke wrote this to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus was someone who didn't know the Lord and he wrote this gospel so that Theophilus could have certainty that he could place his faith, he could stake his whole life on this message that Jesus is the king, that this is true and that this is a matter of life and death. He wrote that for Theophilus, contrasting other kings and other kingdoms with Jesus. And as we jump into this text, I want to backtrack a little bit to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Because here, as it almost feels like a transition from John the Baptist into now we start to see Jesus really in action, we see this little baptism scene where Jesus comes and gets baptized. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now the reason why I want to highlight this is because there is something important that Luke is trying to do in the mind of Theophilus and also in our minds to help us understand who exactly is this guy, Jesus. We have three confirmations Three verbal affirmations of who Jesus is. We have this this sign or this image of the heavens being opened, which makes us think about like the angels coming to the shepherds and seeing the multiple of hosts praising glory to God. He's not from here. He's divine. And then we see the dove coming down, which represents the Holy Spirit and just descends upon Jesus, who's the son of God. And we know that because the father spoke. Imagine being there with all the people and all of a sudden you hear this voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Period. It's a settled statement. There is no room for debate. There's no room for argument. There is not a comma there. The father said it clearly. You are my beloved son. That is who you are. And for all of you who are listening and seeing this, you got to understand, he is my son. He is the true son of God. And I am well pleased with him. And then from there, we get this story of Jesus immediately heading to the wilderness to go toe-to-toe with our arch rival, with the enemy of our souls. Look at this in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, which is where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit. God is leading him. There's intentionality of what God is doing. The Holy Spirit is leading him into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And something struck me that I never thought about this week as I was studying this or at least as I was trying to study this, as we were all dealing with all sorts of other things. So if this sermon is no good, you just blame the snow. Um, But like, like what like dawned on me here was like, nobody was with Jesus. Like, so how do these gospel writers know about this story? Like no one was there. 
Logic tells us, well, Jesus had to have told them this story. And if Jesus told them this story, that has to tell us that there is something significant and important about the story that we need to understand about who he is and the gospel. Powerful stuff. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And that, that phrase, the wilderness, ought to be making bells go off in our minds, just like it would with Theophilus. The wilderness is not a pleasant place. It's not like what we would think of a wilderness, like lush trees and waterfalls and all that kind of stuff. The wilderness was at that time and at that place, they would call this the anti-Eden. It's full of rocks. It's, it's a horrible place. This is a picture of what this wilderness would look like. In fact, we took this picture at our last trip to Israel and just to let you know how rough this was, okay? We, we took a, I can't remember how many mile journey hike on this. And we weren't there for 40 days. We weren't fasting. We weren't any of that stuff. And people legitimately, and I'm not being figurative, we had to literally carry some people to the bus because they couldn't make it. That's how rough this terrain is. And this is where the Holy Spirit intentionally led Jesus. There's all sorts of powerful imagery and metaphors that are being played here. For instance, if we were just to backtrack a little bit again to chapter 3, verse 38, which is like the end of the genealogy section that Luke gave us, because, come on, let's just be honest, we all skip the genealogy. We're like, I don't know why I would read this, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. But at the end of the genealogy, we see something interesting. Luke does something completely different than Matthew's genealogy. He ends it with the son of Adam, the son of God. What, what, what starts to go in your mind when you hear the word Adam? Right? It's the first person that God ever created. Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He didn't know sin. He walked with God in the cool of day. He had everything there. Perfect situation. Lush. Scriptures talk about the old Adam and the new Adam, where the old Adam is this reference to Adam in the garden who fell to the temptation. And Jesus is represented as the new Adam who is being led into the wilderness. Like the old Adam gets a garden, he's set up for success. Where Jesus gets the wilderness, where he's almost like set up for failure. Where Adam falls, Jesus wins. That's this contrast that we're seeing. But also we see this 40 days. And this number 40 should be just like making the, the bells go off, right? 40 days reminds us of the flood of sin and judgment, but also reminds us of Israel. We think about the Exodus story when God led them and rescued them from Egypt. And also they're on this 40-year journey in the wilderness. And Israel was supposed to be God's true son. That's Old Testament language. They were to be the blessing of all nations. They were to be the ones that were showing the light of the world, like the light of the world. There would be the signpost pointing to the Messiah, but they failed. And so now Jesus is in the wilderness, represented as the true son, as true Israel. Reason why I share this with you is because we got to think correctly about Jesus. Like, because I, I know, like, when I used to study this temptation story, I used to be like, how is this a temptation for Jesus? Right? Like, he's God. Could God really be tempted? Like, if we just believe that God is only, like, Jesus is only divine and he's not man, we're not thinking rightly. Jesus has to be the new Adam. He has to be 100% man. He has to be 100% God. So just think about this number, 100%.
He is 100% God. He's 100% man. That way he was able to 100% identify with us. And as a man and as God, he was 100% obedient, 100% dependent. He operated 100% in the confines of humanity. 100% new Adam, 100% true Israel, 100% true God's true son. He's 100% able to save, 100% victorious. If he wasn't fully man, and if he wasn't fully God, then scripture would be lying to us. Then Jesus wouldn't be of any help to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18 for a moment. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and high priest in service of God to make the propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In every respect, in every way, he was a 100% man, 100% God, which tells us that this showdown in the wilderness was real. It was a real suffering. It was real temptation for Jesus. And we got to understand if that's the case, and if he's facing off with the arch enemy of humanity, then the stakes are high. Like the stakes are so high in this story. It's more than just Jesus getting his hunger met. Like this is more than just like a one second little thing. Like this is life and death. If Jesus fails here, the gospel is null and void. Now, I know I'm doing a lot of buildup for this and you're gonna understand why. A lot of people... And a lot of times we read this story, and it's not bad, but we read this story thinking that the point of this story, the emphasis, reason why it's here is that we now have a good example or a model for how to battle temptation. Do we get an example, an instruction, and a model for battling temptation? Yes, but that's not the main point. That's not why Jesus gave us this story. This is ultimately a story of how Jesus fought for us in our place, how he did for us what we could never do. Where we lose the battle to temptation is where he wins the battle for our, for our souls. It's about him being the new man, him being the true son, the true Israel. But we get this glimpse into the devil's playbook and it's the three same plays that he's been using for all time. And every single one of us knows them very, very well. So let's look at this. Verse three, the devil said to him, if, if you're the type that likes to take notes and underline and write in your Bible, this would be a great word to circle. If, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Matthew fills in the second part of this, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan's first play to get Jesus to fall is to attack and to confuse his identity. Like what did we just see in the baptism? The father said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased period, settled. 
You are my beloved son. If you are the son of God, if you, if you are truly the son of God and if God is pleased with you, why would he make you hungry? Like, would he really get mad if you turn these stones into bread? Like, if he really is your good father and if you really are his son, wouldn't it make logical sense that you would provide for yourself? Ooh, he's good, isn't he? We know this one really, really well. Jesus, if you are the son of God, you have the ability to turn this into stone. God wouldn't be upset if you did this. Why would he want you to be hungry? Like on the surface, this temptation appears to be completely innocent and completely logical, right? If, you ha- if you're hungry and you have the ability to provide for your own needs, your own basic needs, whatever it is, you do it. Satan is extremely crafty. This is not a temptation about basic needs. It's about something deeper. He begins by attacking his identity. If you are the son of God, if you are a son or daughter of God, right? And if we start to go, oh my goodness, maybe there is a comma after that. Maybe it isn't true. Because like, if I have needs and they're not being met, when we start to confront and have our identity shaken, then we start to go, well, maybe then God isn't good. Then we start to believe and doubt who God is. Maybe he's not really caring. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe he doesn't really see me. And if that's the case, then we go, well, then I don't know if I can trust him to take care of me. I don't know if I can trust him. So let me just go and take matters into my own hands. Why would God want me to suffer? Why would God want me to be famished with hunger? Like folks, like at the beginning of our trials, just like Jesus, maybe on day one, two, three, or four, like answering this question might be easy. But as one thing comes after another thing, no power, no electricity, no water, busted pipes, just got out of a nasty election. It's COVID. I lost my job. God, where? Come on, God. Ain't I your son? And am I not your daughter? Like, why would you then let me struggle with this? Where are you, God? Like, as those things start to come about, guess what? Saints like, oh, you just took the bait. That's the oldest trick in the book. Where do we see this play being played out before? Oh, the Garden of Eden with the old Adam. Adam, did God really say? Did God really say that if you did this, you would die? Did he really? Adam, he's withholding from you. Like Adam and Eve, they knew no sin. They had everything. They didn't even know they had needs until Satan dropped that into their mind. Oh, you're right. Maybe he is withholding. Yeah, you can be God too. Oh, well, maybe, maybe he doesn't really care. Sound effect added. We know this. This is nothing, it has nothing to do with basic needs. It has everything to do with dependence. It has everything to do, do we trust that God is a good father, that God does love us, that God does take care of us. Jesus could have turned these stones into bread. He could have. He could have fed himself to the full and he could have fed humanity completely. He could have, it was his right. But if he would have done this, he would have moved himself away from being dependent upon the father and taking matters into his own hands. And he would also cease to have been operating in his full humanity. 
We all deal with this. We all deal with this. And in some way, shape, or form, wherever you're at, you're dealing with this in your own life right now. But where Jesus wins, that's where we place place our confidence. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 13. I love what Paul says here. And this is one of the verses that we take out of context so often. And Paul is talking specifically about being in great want and having great abundance. I've learned in whatever circumstance to be content. But why? If we we remember Philippians, it's because he knows Jesus. I know how to be brought low. And I was like, to be like to have nothing, to hunger, to struggle, to not even know where I'm gonna sleep. Like that was Paul. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have a great high priest who won for me, who already said that he would take care of every need. So here's the deal with this story. Because I know some of us start to go, well, what does this mean? Like, like if I don't have this, then God doesn't love me? No, 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 no. Let's look at how Jesus threw it back in Satan's face for a moment. Jesus responded back to Satan and said, listen, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Like, it's like we are dependent upon him. That's the picture here. It's about dependence or independence. This is not about saying, well, I don't need food. I don't need basic needs because I have God's word. Like, don't go to that extreme. That's not what this is about. This is all about, I'm not going to buy your lies, Satan, that God doesn't care about my well-being, and I'm not going to choose to believe that he isn't good and that I'm not his child just because I'm going through something difficult. I'm going to trust him when I have nothing, and I'm going to trust him when I have a lot. The key to this is not going independent on your own but to stay dependent upon him, to not say, well, he doesn't care. I got to go take care of it myself. It's not about trying to be strong and mustering out. No, it's, it's standing behind Jesus because he won and went before us already. Now, listen, here's what I want to say. Where God put a period in your life, Do not allow Satan to put a comma there. And here's what I mean by that. Does God love you? Not a rhetorical exercise. Does God love you? Period. Don't allow Satan to put a comma there. Does God love you? Well, maybe. Are you God's son or daughter? Yes. Period. Do I have a father who takes care of all my needs? Do I have a father who already told me to not be anxious or worry about today or tomorrow or what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to wear? Did he not say that I am more valuable than sparrows? Yes, period. Don't allow Satan come and put a question mark or a comma there and say, well, if you are, then why are you this? It's about being dependent, submitting to him. Well, this play didn't work for Jesus. And also Satan goes to play number two, verses five and eight. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Imagine that. And he said to him, to you, Jesus, I will give you all of this authority and all of their glory for it's been delivered to me. Eh, Sort of. And I will give it to whom I will. 
If you then will worship me, just even for a split second, nobody will know. It's behind closed doors. It's not a big deal. If you would just, just even just, just real quick, I'll give it all to you. Jesus replies, he throws it back in Satan's face. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Take the shortcut, Jesus. Jesus, like you could have all the nations. We could get all of the nations right now to bow before you. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to face rejection. You don't have to face pain. You don't have to be abandoned. You don't have to be mocked. You don't have to be ridiculed. There will be no hurt, Jesus. All you got to do is bow down a little bit right now. That's it. I mean, just imagine this. In this moment, Jesus could be seeing like all of the nations and all of the world flags, and they're all willing to abandon their idols and accept Jesus as king. In this moment, Jesus, you can win the world pain-free, without suffering. You could avoid the cross, Jesus. Israel could recognize you as the Messiah and Rome would pay homage to you. Jesus, come on. Just, just, a little, just once. That's it. That's all. And Satan, what he's doing is he's manipulating God's word, but Jesus has to know that Psalm 2, 8 already tells us that all of the nations will be given to Jesus, just not yet. How tempting is it to take shortcuts? To cut corners, to not carry a cross because the prospect of suffering or pain or whatever and hardship is right in front of us. Jesus knows that before he can sit on the royal throne, he has to hang on a cross. He knows that. He knows he has to take the sin of the world on himself. He knows he's got to be isolated and alone. He knows he's going to be despised and rejected. He knows he's going to be hated and mocked. Was this tempting? You better believe it. 40 days in the heat, in the wilderness. How many of you go crazy when you're by yourself for a couple days? The thoughts. How many of you get hangry after four hours? Like at 40 days in this moment, he's got to feel like he's dying. And to know what lies before him, this has to be extremely tempting. But Jesus, as we see in scripture, there was the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. His food was to do the Father's will. He's not willing to cut corners. He's not willing to take shortcuts. And here's the deal. So many times, we take shortcuts or cut corners or do whatever it is to minimize the pain and suffering in our life. We go after what we think is right, even if it's just a little bit of time. And the reality is, it's like those become the very things that we actively worship. This is an issue of worship. Just look at your heart. What is there? And here's the reality. This is a hard truth, but it's the reality. There's only two, two choices that we can make of who we're going to worship. Only two. And I, and I can argue with you on this. Only two. Jesus and Satan. Some might say yourself, but I would say that's also a fruit of what Satan caused. This is an issue of worship. Jesus makes it clear. Nope. Only him, only God is worthy of worship. 
And he goes on to the play three, takes him up on the temple. He says, Jesus, jump off if you are the son of God. He tempts him again with his identity. He's like, if you're the son of God, and if you want to throw scripture back in my face and say, hey, you trust God's word and scripture, great. Let me throw some scripture back in your face. Because it says that if you jump off here, your father will send angels to catch you. Go ahead, Jesus, do it. Come on. Aren't you the son of God? And you say you believe scripture? Go ahead, do it. And by the way, it's the temple. So all these religious rulers, like who are going to reject you, if they see you do this, perform a miracle and create some awe and spectacular events and things, they will believe you. You can impress them and they will all flock to you, Jesus. Go for it. Test him. Come on. If you're not going to do miracles, maybe you can get the Father to do a miracle for you, Jesus. No, don't test the Lord your God. Here's where this lands for us on that. Do we need God to prove himself? To show us that he cares? Like, do we need for him to validate his love and his concern by doing some sort of miracle? God, if you loved me, you're going to do this sign. In fact, I'm going to make this choice. I'm going to do this sin. I'm going to go this way. And if you loved me, you would stop me. God, if you loved me, have a shooting star go across the sky. Like, do, why do we need to test God just to see if he loves us, if he cares for us? We already have it here. I love this story. Because it's right here in this story is where we see Jesus just sticking it to him. Standing where we fall. And verse 13 is a little ominous, right? The devil had ended every temptation. He lost these rounds. He departed from him. And until an opportune time, he's going to come back. In a moment of need, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of low, where Jesus is low, he's going to come back and try to sneak another temptation in. And that's how he works in our lives. Jesus refused every temptation. He knew Jesus could have. He could have made enough bread to feed himself and everyone in the whole world. He could have made everybody happy and content by meeting every basic need, and yet humanity could still be going to hell. He could have done that. He could have bowed the knee. He could have manipulated the nations to pay him homage. He could have forced that upon them. But that's not the way of Jesus. He's an altogether different kind of king. He could show off and perform some miracles to get people to put their faith in him, but that's not the way of the Father. What we're going to see with Jesus is that he lived a life that we were supposed to live. He said no to the areas where we should have said no and didn't. He says yes to areas where we should have said yes and didn't. And because of this, he died the death that we were condemned to die. He then is our true and pure substitute, 100% man and 100% God. Jesus wins for us. He's victorious for us. And he wins not by claiming the rightful throne or by simply restoring justice or giving us an example to emulate, but he does this by substituting himself for us, suffering for us, fighting for us. So don't forget, 
that he had, like it says in Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God. This is a story of what he has done. He fights for us. He goes before us. Friends, this is like, yes, there's an example, an instruction where we watch and pray. We use scripture to throw it back in Satan's face 100%. This isn't given to us just so we can muster up our courage and fight our own battles. All these things. No, it's for us to place our faith in the one who fought the battles for us on our behalf. Always. He's always for us. Always fighting for us. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what basic needs in your life that are causing you maybe to question your identity or even to question God's goodness. I don't know what's on the throne of your heart, what you're giving your heart to, what you're worshiping. Now, I don't know if you're putting God to the test and just saying, God, obviously you don't care because you're not doing this miracle or this thing in my life. But what I do know is that Jesus has come for you. He's made a way for you. He made the sacrifice for our sins so that we could confess and repent and be moved to life in Jesus. Today's the day for us to say, I stand behind Jesus. I stand under Jesus. I'm with him. I'm on his side because he fights for me. James chapter 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Stay dependent upon God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist the devil by believing that when God says it, it's a period. There's no comma. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We thank you that you were the substitute, that you are the new Adam, the new man, the true Israel, that you defeated death, you defeated our foe, you made a way for victory, you made a way for life. And so God, would we continue to look to you? Lord, would you stir in our hearts the conviction and the discipline to watch and pray so we don't stumble into temptation. And part of that is believing in what you said to know your word, to speak your word back to these temptations. None of this minimizes how hard it is. For you know, and that's why I love that you are our great high priest and you can sympathize with us. You know the struggles, you know the suffering. We thank you for that. 
We thank you that we don't have to fight these battles because you fought these battles for us. So Lord, I ask that in this moment as we conclude singing this song back to you, that a few things would happen. One, that we would seal in our hearts again the faith that you are our conquering lion. You defeated the enemy. You defeated death and the grave. You broke the power of sin. But two, I also pray that in this moment, if there's areas in our hearts where maybe we have placed commas, where there should be periods, where we started to doubt your character or even doubt to know who we are in you, maybe we have given into idols and worshiped other things. God, may this be the time of repentance for us. We love you. We praise you. And we ask you now, Lord, to seal this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.